Well, I want to take <clears throat> a few minutes and, and, and introduce you to, to myself, and I want to do that um, with a couple of stories and introduce you to a few people who are important in my life. It's, uh, we're grandparents now, and it's interesting that the pictures of the kids go away, right, and the pictures of the grandparents go into your wallet, and that's the first thing that comes out. So if you want to show, throw that first picture up, that's, that's Harry. He's our grandson. He's about 22 months old. Harry is just, he's a, just a delight, just a wonderful spirit. He's the son of our youngest daughter, Molly, and her husband, Joe. Uh, just an amazing couple. They've known each other since they were, they were little. They went to Awanas together. Um, we all knew they were going to get married before they knew they were going to get married. So a couple weeks ago, Molly was sick, and, and we had Harry for a couple nights. And uh, with his sensitive nature, sometimes he has a hard time sleeping. So first night was pretty good. The second night was a little challenging. And so I ended up with Harry laying on me with me sitting on the couch um, in our den, and uh, it was not a very restful night um, by any means, um, and it was, it was trying. It was trying my patience a little bit. He finally fell asleep, and I got a little sleep, but about 5.15 in the morning, um, I feel this stirring on my chest, and I'm going, oh no, oh no, oh no, and sure enough, Pretty soon, this little face pops up, and almost like he is in the picture, he just looks up at me and smiles, and then he takes his little hands, and he parts of, of, of my face, my body, and just smiling. And I tell you, all the, all the aggravation of the night was gone, and my heart was just bursting with joy. And isn't that the case, that, uh, that joy just overwhelms any struggles that we have. So that's Harry. So the next picture is of, of Viola. She's our two-month-old little granddaughter. And Steve mentioned um, Katie, went to school with Katie. It's Katie and her husband David's little girl. Now, Katie and David are, are both grew up in, in, in music theater, went to college and started careers in that. And they actually met through doing a show together and their first uh, scene together was actually getting married. And so I, I think there was some kind of prophetic word in that. And, um, well, a couple years later, this is now their leading lady, Viola. And, again, she smiled at me for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And, again, I can't tell you the joy that that just gives you. Do you know that God gives us amazing capacity um, to love? And when we love purely that capacity grows. If you think about that, when Harry came along, there was just this overwhelming sense of, of more love that I had for him. And then Viola came along, and it's not, not like I had to take the love I had for Harry and give part of it to Viola. He just gave me a greater capacity to love. And that's the amazing thing about when we love purely, our capacity to love grows in the same hand when we love impurely, that capacity to love gets divided, something to remember. Well, all the joy from those two, and of course our daughters and now our son-in-law, started 38 years ago. There you go. Steve says I should go back to that look, but I, <laughs> I told him I don't think that's possible with, with the lack of, of hair in my head at this point. 38 years ago when Diane and I said I do. And that begat what um, today. Yeah. 
ops group, mothers of preschoolers, and so there was a, a room of 100 women or so, and we were asked, the men were asked to share one word that described their wife. And I spent a lot of time thinking about what one word would I choose to describe my wife. There are so many beautiful words. So I actually prayed about it. And, and, and God gave me the word hot. <laughs> now, I know God is not disrespectful, and I know he's not going to want me to stand up in front of a, a room full of women and say, my wife is hot, Right? So I prayed into that a little more, and what he showed me was a, a vision of a light bulb. And he said, Mike, what happens when you turn a light switch on and a light bulb comes on? It becomes hot, right? And the longer it stays on, the hotter it becomes. He says, that is your wife. She is a light to the world. She is hot to the world. She is a light in my life. She is very hot to me. And so that's my description of Diane it's been a, an incredible journey for the last 38 years, um, and there have been some significant obstacles along the way. Um, much trauma, as I would say, has been thrown up on us. Yet, despite all of that, um, this past Easter Sunday, we found ourselves just embracing and just sharing how blessed we felt with all that the Lord has bestowed upon us. It did require a lot of work to get there. It requires a lot of work to stay there, both individually and together. It always does. And I would say that 33 or 34 of those 38 years have been mostly really good. Um, the other four or five, and really the last four or five, have been mostly amazing. And I believe the reason why is because God revealed to me, that I had become content with a really good marriage, but that he didn't create marriage to be really good. He created it to be what we call epic. He didn't create really good. He created epic. And so together, we started pursuing our understanding of what God's design is for marriage and how to live it out. And I think that's why we are able to embrace each other today and really acknowledge how blessed we are because of our marriage relationship. So I'm excited to stand here this morning and tell you um, that the same joy Diane and I experience every day in our marriage and our family is available to you if you don't know that, and to share some insight on how to get there if you're not, in fact, already there. Uh, and I appreciate you kind of adding that disclaimer at the beginning because I know all of you are not married, and I would just say this. If, if you are thinking that you're never going to be married again, we have a, a young man at our church who uh, had taken a vow of celibacy, and, and now he is very happily married. <laughs> and so you never know what God is going to ordain. Uh, but I do hope that, that what I share is relevant to you, whether you're single, married, getting married, whether you're a, a teenager, um, something that you can, can latch on to and carry forward with you. I chose a very traditional wedding verse ceremony, wedding ceremony verse for you this morning. Um, you've heard it many times as you've witnessed weddings. You may have even had it shared at your wedding. Uh, we often ask couples in our marriage workshop or counseling to reflect on this verse and to just kind of write down what does that mean what did it mean back then when you got married? What does it mean to you today? And we kind of get this blank stare. 
it's this, in the second chapter of the Bible, it is God's pronouncement about what he has created in marriage, and yet we have spent very little time even thinking and reflecting on it. It's from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and they shall become one flesh. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man, and by inference the woman as well, shall separate themselves from the authority and legacy of their parents and create something entirely new. Now, they're building on the foundation of all the good they have been taught, but with none of the restrictions to hold them back from creating something entirely new, something entirely new and properly beautiful. Then it says, the man shall hold fast to his wife, and she to him, when she's trusting of his heart, but not to hold fast to career goals or retirement plans or kids, but to each other. Some translations say cleave, to cling or adhere. We're actually to glue ourselves to each other. And then it says, they shall become one flesh. A man and a woman, two distinct beings, joining together to become one person. Nietzsche writes, it is brought about by the resolve of two to create a unity which is more than those who created it. It is reverence for one another and for the fulfillment of such a resolve. Powerful words. More than those who created it. The joining of two to create something that is more than the two of them together. Our son and daughter-in-law have uh, a, a little plaque above Harry's dresser that says one plus one equals three. I love that. One plus one equals three. They put that up after Harry was born. But that has so much connotation in the marriage relationship. If we go back in chapter 2 of Genesis and read about the creation of man and then woman, we, we read in verse 7 that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And then he didn't take him another scoop of dust and create woman. He took part of man and he formed a woman. And Adam says about the woman, this is flesh of my flesh. God created man in his image and then he separated them. God was actually the first to split the atom. I don't know. I just wanted to see if you, any of you were, were paying attention, right? And he proclaimed over them that through marriage, listen to this, through marriage they shall recombine to represent the fullness of the image of God. Are you understanding that? Because individually, Diane and I represent the image of God, but together we more represent the image of God. Does that make sense? Oneness. Oneness. Two distinct souls, two distinct spirits, two distinct physical bodies joining together to reveal the image of God. Well, what's the, what's the best example of what that looks like? 
I want you to go back to the fourth word of the Bible. The fourth word of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, the Hebrew word for God is Elohim, Elohim, and it is translated to mean more than two. In other words, three, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So God, in the oneness of the Trinity, created the heavens and the earth, the sun and the moon, the land and the sea, all creatures, man, woman, and marriage. There were no meetings, there were no staff meetings between the Father, Son, and the Spirit to talk about strategy or who was responsible for what. Just three separate personalities as one holy God with one purpose, creating the world. That's what oneness is to look like. What Elohim has created is perfect in every way, including the sacrament of marriage. And then with infinite wisdom and knowledge, that's said sarcastically, he gives us responsibility to manage it. Now, you've got to kind of wonder about God at that point and go, I've created this amazing thing, and now I'm going to give you the world, not just marriage, and now I'm going to give you, man, the responsibility to manage it. But he does know what he's doing, doesn't he? But he created us in his image, which means we are also creators of what is good. You follow that? He created us in his... He's a creator of everything that is perfect, and we are in his image. Therefore, we are creators of what is good as well. So that means that through the power of the Spirit of Christ within us, we have the capability to create our marriage in his image. We have the capability to do that. And the question I would challenge you with this morning is, what are you creating in your marriage? What are you creating in your marriage? Have you ever even thought about it from the standpoint of what the two of you are creating? Have you ever thought about what it's supposed to look like? There are many different models of marriage in the world today, right? Each of you brought an idea of what that was supposed to look like into your relationship based on what you experienced, what you grew up with. But mostly what we have done is we have taken what God has created and we have recreated it into our own image, into our own design. In fact, Adam and Eve started the recreation process shortly after when the snake came into the garden. And God's response was this. To the woman he said, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, I did some study on that, trying to figure out what exactly that meant. I think every man would want his wife to desire him. That's not what that means. And I found uh, some teaching by Jeff Von, Van Vonderen, um, a pastor, and he said this, that when God pronounced that, he was simply revealing the self-centered core that was beginning to motivate each of them. The woman would continue to try to draw life and nurturing from a man who was not capable of filling these deep needs. Never was, never will be. 
And the man would be forever trying to rule over the woman, either aggressively or passively, trying to keep her quiet about his inadequacy to fill his, her need. Each would demand love, respect, nurturing from the other. Demand love, respect, nurturing from the other. And as the generations of their children passed, men and women would forget that they were never supposed to draw their life from each other. How many of us live our marriages with the intent of drawing life from the other? Never intended, not part of God's design. There really is only one model that is good and right, and, and that is the model that was given by the one who created it in the first place. R.C. Sproul says this, Nothing in the world can be properly understood unless it is understood in terms of God's design and plan. Nothing in the world can be properly understood unless it is understood in terms of God's design and plan. So Adam, if you think about it, if you're using a chop saw to cut a two-by-four, you're not going to use that same chop saw to trim your fingernails, are you? It would work. It would work, nor would you use fingernail trimmers to try to cut a two-by-four. It is not what it was designed for. We have to look and use things in the way that they were intended and designed. And so we have to go back and try to understand what God's intent and design was for marriage. So Tim and Kathy uh, Keller wrote this great book called The Purpose of Marriage. It's been instrumental in Diane and I in our journey. And we, we, I, I think we would say it is required reading for every premarital counseling, for every couple going into marriage and for every couple. And they kind of break it down into four parts. The first is contained in, in Genesis chapter 2. Again, we're way back in the beginning uh, where God proclaims that it is not good for man to be alone. I'm grateful that he understood and did that. Now, understand that woman was not an afterthought, okay? It, it, he created woman after man, but there was always the intent to do that because in the prior chapter, it says God creates man and then gives them dominion over the earth, not him, them, dominion over the earth. So he already knew what was coming, and out of the man, he creates a suitable helper, woman, and she is a helper in the sense that she is required, she is required in order for man to fulfill his purpose, and vice versa. She is required in order for man to fulfill his purpose, and he for her. So many of us, I think, are led to believe that woman was created so that man would have someone to love them, right? But the truth is just the opposite. Woman was created so that man would have someone to love, because that is our purpose. Our purpose in life is to love. The fact that we are loved in return is a great benefit, but the purpose is to love. Woman was created so that man could fulfill his purpose to love, and she could fulfill hers by loving him. The second is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all of it. That's Genesis chapter 1, 28. You guys have all done a good job here. There's a lot of children, right? That's great. It's organic growth, I guess. The purpose of having children is to expand God's kingdom on earth by training them up 
in the way they should go. That's from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. By training them up in the way that they should go. So it's interesting, if we think about that, children are not created for our happiness, right? That's called a pet. Um, They're not created for our bidding. That's called a maid or a butler. But rather they are created to live as children of the king, not to glorify us, but to glorify the king as humble and obedient servants. And if you think about it, there's nothing selfish in the first part about loving another. There's nothing selfish in the part about raising up children in the way that they should go. But again, when you fulfill your purpose as parents, I showed you a minute ago, you live into what God intended and you receive great joy as a result. And then third, God wants you to understand and learn how to love and be loved unconditionally. How to love and be loved unconditionally. Uh, on your website, it says this about your series. It says, for the next few weeks, we will, we will be looking at how a relationship with Jesus can help us to redeem all of our other relationships. We believe God created the marriage relationship first and elevated it to its place of significance because it is in the marriage relationship that we learn how to be Christ-like in all of our relationships. Let me say that again. God created the marriage relationship first and values it, I think, higher than any other relationship between two people because it is in that relationship that we learn how to love unconditionally and receive love unconditionally in every relationship in our life. Marriage draws you into greater intimacy with Him because... It is a revelation of his love to you. The covenant relationship that we talk about, that we teach in the church, the covenant relationship of marriage is God's plan for teaching you this love. Let me read a quote again from from, um, Tim Keller in The Meaning of Marriage. It says, On the one hand, the experience of marriage will unveil the beauty and depths of the gospel to you, It will drive you further into reliance on it. On the other hand, a greater understanding of the gospel will help you experience deeper and deeper union with each other as the years go on. We talk about life being a merry-go-round and we want to get off. Understand that God created us to be on a merry-go-round with the gospel and marriage and we should want to stay on that. We want to be on that because as you go deeper in your marriage relationship, you go deeper into the gospel and your relationship with God. And as you go deeper into your relationship with God, you go deeper in your relationship, in your marriage. It's a beautiful thing. Over the years, Diane and I have learned that there is great benefit in being transparent and vulnerable. That's intimacy, being transparent and vulnerable with ourself, with ourself, with God, and then with each other. At one point, I wrote this, I think I was journaling one day, and it says, I became intimate with my own emotions, brokenness, and gifting. I came to grips with who I really was, good news and bad. But the more I came to know me, the more I desired to become intimate with the one who created me and my life purpose. In the epic marriage workshop that I mentioned before, the first third of it 
that we teach is on self-intimacy. Who are you? What did you bring into this relationship? Who is my wife? What did she bring into that relationship? And this is what we have found. As each of you is drawn into greater intimacy with yourself, you will naturally experience an increase in your desire to become more like him and who he created you to be, to become more like him as a husband, as a wife, as a son, as a daughter, as a friend, as a worker, as a pastor, as a worship leader. Unconditional love makes it safe and beneficial for each of you to become more like the true you. Creating a safe environment in our marriage has allowed us both to look at ourselves good and bad and to grow into more of what God designed and created us to be individually. And then the fourth part is simply to bring forth his glory, which you created to do in everything. That's the creation piece. We're creating something that is going to draw other people not to us and to our marriage, but they're going to look at us and they're going to see what our marriage is founded on and they're going to see the ripple effect as they look at our kids and our grandkids and they're going to say, I want that. They're going to draw, it's going to glorify God because it's going to draw people to him. And that's, that's our purpose, to glorify him. So God created the sacrament of marriage to provide someone for you to love, to raise godly children, to teach you to love unconditionally and bring forth his glory. And when we live out our marriage per this design, we create our marriage in his image and it is properly beautiful. It is properly beautiful. Well, I was going to take a quick survey here and see how many of you are actually living that out in your marriage, but I don't know you that well, or you don't know me that well, and so I don't want to embarrass any of you this morning. But I just want you to think about that for a second. How well are you living out that purpose in your marriage? Is that stuff that you've known all along? Is that what you were taught in your premarital counseling? Or is that today kind of a whole new understanding of what this marriage relationship is supposed to look like, what the purpose of this marriage is supposed to look like. Well, I think it, it, it's important for us to also understand what gets in the way. What gets in the way? Research will list things like finances and lack of intimacy or poor communication for the reasons for the high divorce rate. But the greatest obstacle, the root of all problems in marriage is evil. It's evil. Uh, a few years back now, I got a prophetic word, and God said that, that Satan is going to enhance his attack on marriages because he wants to bring destruction and separation by destroying marriages. And, and as we counsel people, we, we see that every day. We see this attack. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear in his letter to the Ephesians when he writes that, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Our battle is not against each other, although it so often ends up there, but it's against the spiritual forces of evil. And isn't it interesting that if we would just simply 
stop and acknowledge that Satan is in the midst of this fight right now, we could turn together as, as one with God, the three-strand cord, three cord, and we could, we could battle against Satan. We would win. Scripture says that we would win that fight. But it is the sole purpose of Satan and his army, his army of evil, to turn us away from God and therefore from good and therefore from epic marriage. Through lies and deceptions, that's where Satan works, through our mind, through lies and deceptions, evil creates chaos in our relationship with our spouse. And we end up not with two becoming one, but rather with one opposed to the other. Well, how does Satan do that? Well, first, evil creates bitterness. Evil creates bitterness, a hardened heart. Couples come in for marriage counseling. Inevitably, one or both of them have a hardened heart. And if we begin to unpack that a little bit, we find, we always find that there is bitterness on the part of one or the other in some area of their marriage because of something, a wound that has been caused that has never been dealt with or not effectively dealt with. We, the church, teach that marriage is a covenant relationship, but most often, we as individuals live it out as a contract. What's the difference? So a contract says you've already probably entered into a contract, whether you're, you're buying a car or, or whether you're buying a house or in business or whatever, and a contract basically says, I will do this for you if you do that for me, right? And then if you break that, understand, there's going to be a penalty clause. A covenant says that I'm entering the, into this relationship and I'm going to do this for you, and I'm accepting that you're entering this relationship, and you're going to do that for me. But by the way, if for some reason you can't fulfill your end of that agreement, I'm still going to do that for you. That's the covenant relationship. There's actually three parts to it. The first is I'm going to covenant with God that I'm going to live per the design that he established. The second is I'm choosing you to live that covenant with. And the third part is God saying, okay, now you step in to the joy that I have established when you live out a covenant relationship. A contract says I have the right to extract a penalty for you not living up to your contractual agreement that you have just failed. It doesn't even matter that you don't know what my expectations were, right? So often it's an unwritten contract. But the contract has been breached and you are unwilling to pay the penalty that I want you to pay. And so therefore, there's got to be a debt paid and that debt is bitterness. And instead of resolving it, it festers and the self-pity opens us up, opens a door to the evil one. And we allow the evil one to come into our soul and he brings that spirit of bitterness with him. We actually give bitterness permission to reside in our soul because we believe we deserve restitution. Understand, bitterness leads to resentment, unforgiveness, retaliation, anger, and eventually divorce. It leaves no room for grace and mercy, for forgiveness and healing. It robs us of intimacy. It robs us of intimacy. 
it ultimately robs us of oneness. So Satan leads us to bitterness and we lose sight of what God created. The second thing is evil turns us against each other by distorting our vision, keeping us from believing what is available to us. Matthew 25 says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the master. The joy of the master. So if you create a marriage that is in the image of God, do you not expect that you will receive a great reward? Think about that. If, if, if I live out this marriage as God intended it to be, should I not expect a great reward for him? It says that in Matthew 25. That's a promise. That's a promise from our Lord. But think about it. Why would I do the work I need to do? And, and please understand, marriage is work. Any relationship any intimate relationship requires work. If I don't believe that that reward is available to me or that we can get to that place to receive that reward, then I'm not going to even bother to try to live into that marriage relationship, am I? So Satan distorts our vision by taking our eyes off of that inner depth of joy that an epic marriage creates. And this is what he does. This is how he does it. He turns them toward a worldly view of happiness. He takes us off, our eyes off of the joy that is available and turns them towards what the world depicts as happiness. The problem is happiness is most often short-lived and beyond our control. Think about it. If, if, if I am seeking after happiness and I have to depend not only on another person, my wife, and my broken self, and the environment that we live in, I will always be disappointed. I will never achieve happiness as I think I should if that is my goal. But if instead together we rely upon God, focus on His will for our marriage, then joy will prevail. Great joy. So Satan distorts our vision so that we lose sight of the amazing reward of joy God has given us when we live out his design. And then third, evil keeps us from Christ-like thinking. Satan, as I said before, attacks our mind, our thoughts. And as our pastor likes to say, he creates stinking thinking. Stinking thinking. We allow bitterness in. We lose sight of the reward. We are selfish. We lack understanding because we are not like-minded with Christ. I don't know how often we hear, I'm unhappy in my marriage and God wants me to be happy. Well, that's a lie. Satan wants us to believe that and think that, that happiness is our goal because he knows happiness is beyond our control. What happens when we don't achieve that? Who do we blame? We blame God. We blame each other first. And then ultimately, we blame God. Well, God wants me to be happy, so therefore he doesn't want me to be in this unhappy marriage. No. God has created joy for you, and if you live out his plan according to how he established it, you will receive that reward. Studies have shown that sex and money are two of the leading causes for divorce. And I, I don't know that there's any, any marriage that we've dealt with in counseling that 
hasn't brought up these two areas as an area of conflict. Yet, interestingly, the Bible is very clear, right? On both of these areas, there is great teaching in the Bible on both of these, on finances and sex, okay? If we live according to what the world teaches us, we actually are choosing to put ourselves into bondage. If we live according to what God's directive is, we are putting ourselves into freedom. That's the way, it, the truth, the truth will set you free. It's interesting, think about it, the world would have us focus on achieving sexual and financial pleasure, and you can substitute the word happiness for pleasure, when the truth is that God's purpose is not for our pleasure. Sex is not designed for our pleasure. Finances are not to prosper us for our pleasure. Finances are about meeting our needs. Prosperity is a possible benefit, but we are to be content regardless, trusting and having the freedom to know that God will provide our needs. And, and sex was created as a great gift by God. But it was created for intimacy, not for physical pleasure. That's a side benefit of it. Sex was created for intimacy. And if we don't think of it in that, in that sense, we will lose sight of what God's plan was, and we will miss the joy that God has created for us to have. So stinking thinking changes our focus to ourself rather than to God and our spouse. I think maybe last week or whatever you were, you were taught in the series that we should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves from Philippians. That's so true in the marriage relationship. So true in the marriage relationship. We need to count our spouse as more significant than ourselves. That doesn't mean that we count ourselves as insignificant. It just means that our spouse is more significant than ourselves. So go back to our text again. Therefore, and this time let's look at it from, from Mark's gospel as Jesus spoke these words. He reiterated the words of the father and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. And then Jesus adds um, this command, and it is a command. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, as he addressed the hardened heart, the bitter heart of the Pharisees. So, so, so hear this, we need to understand this. God does not put forth any restriction, any, any command like that, that is not, number one, in our best interest. Okay, number two, that is not, we are not capable of following, so we are capable of living this out. And I didn't say that, I, I want to rephrase that because it's not our capability that allows us to live that out. It is the Spirit of Christ within us that allows us to live that out, okay? But 
through all this, we need to be Christ-like in our thinking and not recreate him and marriage into our own image. God's creation is amazing. I said before, it is properly beautiful. That's one of the descriptors if you go back to the Greek of the word good. God said it is good, properly beautiful. The reward is great. The joy of the master, the same joy that God experiences. We are created to want nothing less. Okay? It is possible to achieve. The spirit of the living God ordains it if we submit ourselves to his will. We experience great joy. It is possible. It is amazing. And I would love to just stop right here and send you out with this great desire and hope for an epic marriage, thinking that we can just go do it. But I would be remiss, I think, because I think we would all fall short. At the same time, I would love to give you five quick and easy steps that you can take in order to achieve that epic marriage. But our, our marriage workshop is three days long, so um, it's, it would be a little challenging to try to put that in five minutes. Okay? But instead, let me give you quickly five steps for you to take. But with the challenge and stipulations that you must pursue them on your own. And, and I put some um, resource sheets. There's a green sheet um, in the back on the table. Uh, it's called Glorious Marriage Resource List. And that will give you some resources or ways that you can pursue. And these, these five things that I'm going to quickly say share are available to you if you decide that you want it. The first is this, become intimate with yourself. I think you need to, that's where we start. Become intimate with yourself. We must come to grips with who we are, wounds at all, before we can even begin to address our relationship with God and with each other. Now, God says, come to me as you are, and that's true, but oftentimes we refrain from doing that because we're unwilling to look in the mirror at who we are. Okay, so seek counsel and spiritual direction in that regard. Second is seek greater intimacy with God. Healing and revelation come from the Lord. If, if you sit at his feet in his presence, you will receive his wisdom. If you open the word, if you spend time in transparent, intimate prayer conversation with him, you will begin to understand his will and purpose for your marriage and for you individually. The third is to take authority over evil. We have been, we have been given power Jesus proclaimed that, if you go back and read chapter 10 of Luke, we have been given power through the authority, the name of Jesus Christ as our king, right? And I'll leave that up to your pastor to address that in teaching, but, but again, there's a great resource, um, Biblical Foundations of Freedom. There's also an exercise in teaching that, that we've created that we'd be glad to email you, and you can shoot me an email and ask me for that, 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 that will help you work through that bitterness. We had one couple that... that um, Gosh, they, they've, 30-some years they've been married and, and just really struggling, struggling, struggling. They went back in, and they're, and they're strong believers um, trying to follow God's plan and design. They went back and did this bitterness exercise, and they came back in, and they were just, it was new. It was, like, it was brand new. It was amazing. Uh, the fourth is, is to do a, what we call a brain detox, transform your mind. Remember, our mind controls our attitudes and our actions. Our mind is a product of our thoughts, and we, and we have the ability to change our thoughts. I love the, 
the first song that we sang, actually, and it says, oh, my soul, we're talking to our soul. David did that all the time. Talking to our soul. We're telling our soul what is right and good. And, and the question is, what are you feeding your soul? Are you feeding your soul from the Spirit of God, from the Word of God, or from the world? Paul says in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul tells us we have the ability to transform our minds. And Dr. Carolyn Leaf is, is a great resource for understanding how to transform your own mind. We can do that. There's a 21-day program where you know, we talk about habits being changed in 21 days. We can actually transform our mind in, in 21 days. I, I preached about that one Sunday and then thought maybe I should do that. Maybe I should practice what I preach. And I went and did that in three areas of my life and had just great breakthrough. So she, she wrote a great book. She's got a website, so you can, you can look her up as well. And then, and then the fifth is learn how to resolve conflict effectively. Gary Smiley writes that, Gary Smalley writes that healthy conflict is a doorway to the deepest level of intimacy and connection. But that's only true if, if we resolve it effectively. And every couple, we believe, needs a conflict resolution tool to utilize in their marriage. Most couples don't have it. They just wing it. And most often, it doesn't work. And I think there's a lot of them out there. We have one that, again, we can share with you through email. But it has a twofold goal. It is agreement and intimacy, okay? Convincing, which couples often spend time in conflict trying to convince the other that they're right, you're wrong. That's win-lose. Um, but the big one is compromise. Uh, I, I, I think a lot of us are taught that we have to compromise in marriage. If you think about it, compromise is lose-lose. There's nothing good about compromising because God wants us to get to agreement and we can, we can show you how that one couple will get to a decision by compromising and another couple will get there by, by getting to agreement. This couple will have bitterness this couple will have joy and intimacy. But oftentimes we get to agreement and we don't have intimacy, so we need to add that as well and be intentional about regaining intimacy after there have been maybe harsh words shared or hurt done, and um, there's ways to do that as well, okay? So I say all that to say that um, it's, it's, this is simple, right? This marriage thing is simple, but it's not easy. And that's the difference. It's simple because God created it such a way. Um, but it's not easy because it requires a lot of work. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's oneness. That's epic marriage. That's joy. And ultimately, that's glory. Amen.